I well remember where I was um, when I discovered that celebration was a discipline, um, because it was a joyous moment for me. I've struggled with discipline my whole life. It's not something that comes easily to me. If you look at Strength Finder, those of you who speak that language, it's pretty low down. I won't tell you what number it is, but it's pretty low. So when I found out that celebration was a discipline, my heart leapt, because I thought, yes, that's what I can do. And uh, there are many of us who will have that same reaction and a kind of breath of fresh air and think, yes, God wants us to celebrate. And it's a discipline and it's one we've got. Others of us, particularly if we're going through trials at the moment, will find this really hard. Uh, But as Andy just said, all of these letters from Paul, if you like, are prefaced by the fact that he was persecuted, that he was in prison, that he was shipwrecked. And if anyone had the kind of permission for pity, and self-pity, it was Pauling. Yet, as he writes to the church in Thessalonica, what is it that he urges them to do? In the very first letter, even in the very first chapter, actually, he says to give thanks. And he even gives thanks for all of them and says what a blessing they are to him. So celebration is a discipline. It's, uh, as we heard last week from Andy, it's an amazing antidote to some of our depressions, some of our anxieties, some of our concerns of life, that actually as we think on lovely things, true things, beautiful things, as we heard last week in Philippians, our hearts can rise and our hope can rise. And this week, in this very, very short passage, and we'll also look at uh, the example of Jesus in this, we're, we're told to rejoice always, uh, to do that as a continual discipline. And um, it's quite hard for us sometimes to really find things to celebrate. And yet, Dallas Willard says that actually we should celebrate the goodness of God and the greatness of God in all things. And I think that helps us that when life is tough and when we're looking at our lives and thinking, how do I celebrate? this season, actually our hearts say, well, God, you are still good. You are still great. And it's you that we celebrate. And I think Paul does that really brilliantly. Van Gogh, one of my favorite painters, painted an awful lot, as many of you will know, of yellow. Uh, He did that because he suffered with depression. And he found that actually when he painted yellow, when he painted pastoral scenes, when he painted daffodils and sunflowers, he actually found that something changed within him that helped him celebrate rather than be downcast and barking puts it really well in terms of perspective when he says, if we face the sun, the shadows fall behind us. But if we turn our backs on the sun, all the shadows will be in front. William Barclay, one of my favourite commentators. Um, And actually, when life is hard, it's very easy to turn our back on the sun. It's a a very, very natural instinct. Jesus' life was born into joy. Actually, we've just had Christmas, and uh, when we did that, we will have heard these words. I bring you good news of great joy, which shall come to all the people. Jesus was born in joy. He was born as a herald of joy, as a messenger of joy. And this is Jesus' words as he prepares to leave. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy might be in you, and that your joy may be full. 
So he begins with joy. As he leaves, he says that your joy may be full. He commissions it in us. And actually, he's alive. His resurrection joy is clear. And actually, we read in Hebrews, Paul writes that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus was able to endure the cross. In other words, joy is lacing the gospel of Jesus throughout. And even when he was in the darkest time, the deepest shadow, the hardest pain, it was the joy that was set before him that kept him. And I think that's the discipline for us, that whether we're in good times or bad or a bit of both, that actually for the joy that is set before us eternally, we can celebrate. Um, I don't know, how many people learnt the piano when they were young here? Put your hands up. Okay, lots of us. How many still play? Yeah, not as many. Interesting. Me neither. I don't have a piano, so that uh, slightly helps. But... Um, I used to do piano lessons for six years, and I think my piano teacher would describe those years as gruelling, six <laughs> gruelling years of me playing study in F and study in G and rondo in F. Now, those three pieces are not party pieces, are they? So you don't have a party and gather around the piano and say, Judy, could you step up and give us rondo in F again, because that was magical. Um, we don't. So if you like, I learnt the wrong pieces for me. I passed my exams faithfully. I went up to London with my sister. I did grade one, two, three, four, and five, and then gave up. I think everyone breathed a sigh of relief at that point. But I kind of got the badges, if you like, of duty, but I never found the joy in it. And I wonder if I would have found the joy in it, maybe even my family might have found the joy in it, if I got to play things that actually were relevant to me, joyful things that would have been good at a party, that if we had a party at New Year, I could say, actually, I'll play this. But I didn't. And I think there's something about the, the kind of joy of celebration, the discipline of celebration is, if faith and religion is just a duty to us. We will give in to temptation and despair. If it's all the shoulds and oughts and the grade one, grade two, and make the grade, we won't find this, but we will find it in mercy. We will find it in forgiveness. We will find it in the joy of creation, as Andy reminded us so vividly last week. If we're looking for it, that maybe we need to rediscover the music of our faith, Jesus was critical, not all of the time, but when was he critical? He was critical of the Pharisees. He was critical of them, not because they took their faith too seriously, but because they took themselves too seriously within it. And isn't that a message for us as Riverside Church? Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonia, but he could be writing to us saying, Riverside Church, don't forget the good news of the gospel. Don't forget that you're party people, that you were born out of joy, into joy, and eternally to live in joy. And even though life is tough and hard, you can see the joy. The three statements that we have, rejoice. If you look at the definitions of that, it's to find joy in, to experience joy. Never stop praying. Verse 17, in everything, give thanks. Verse 18. Philip Yancey, one of my favorite writers, writes this. As I have grown old, my feelings about God have come down to these things. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> 
thanks, guys. <laughs> Gratitude and hope. Now, if you can read that, I certainly can't. Um, also, uh, Lewis Smedes at the end says, gratitude is the pleasure of hope come true. Hope is the pain of gratitude postponed. Gratitude comes easily on its own steam wherever we know that someone has given us a real gift. Don't worry, trying to read the rest of it. Paul says that there is release in gratitude. And you and I know this. If you're a believer today, and even if you're not, you know that once you start to look at life <clears throat> through gratitude, through a more grateful heart, as we see often in the third world, as we see in the persecuted church, as we see in the marginalized, we see it at night shelter when we run that ministry, we see it at stay and play, we've seen people who have had really, really tough times still able to say thank you, to be grateful, to celebrate. This may surprise you, but this week our community group danced. I know, scary. I think it's quite scary if you were filming it, but if you're in it, you don't care, do you? And we danced, I think, for the first time as a group. It was hilarious. It was so dysfunctional, it was good, if you know what I mean. Um, but actually, I'd gone in, in quite a low place that night. It'd been a heavy day at work, and I just thought, oh, I don't know if I can find the energy for this. And there we were at the end, doing this sort of kind of Jewish dancing, really. That's what we call it. And it lifted me because we were celebrating because actually despite all of the different things going on in that room uh, we were finding things and naming things that we could celebrate interestingly and I find this a really helpful teaching I think I've got this wrong in the past I don't think it's true to say that we have to give thanks for all circumstances. Some will disagree, I know that, I've read the commentaries, I've read the books, the Joel Austins, the people who tell us to be happy all of the time and jump out of bed. I don't think I can really sign up to that theology, if I'm honest. I've sat with people in gruelling pain and I think the very last thing I'm ever going to say as a pastor is if you thought of saying thank you for this tragedy in your life. I think I'd expect to be punched and probably deserve it. All right, but actually to give thanks in all circumstances is different. And that is the original text that Paul writes. In other words, you're not saying thank you that I'm struggling with this illness or this depression or I'm bereaved or whatever. But you are saying even in this, I still believe in the goodness of God. I still believe in the hope of heaven and the joy of heaven. That actually, if you like, this is the dress rehearsal for the real thing. Tony Campolo, again, slightly controversial figure, uh, but I, I quote him because of a brilliant story when he was touring in Hawaii, uh, so we don't feel that sorry for him, uh, but it was the middle of the night, his body clock hadn't changed, he was awake and hungry at three in the morning. And at three in the morning in Hawaii where he was, which was sort of downtown, the only place he could find open was a little kind of uh, pie shop, a little pie and mash and a hot dog shop. And so at three o'clock in the morning, he thinks he'll go in and see if he can get a cooked breakfast or something to fill up this hunger. And he sits there at three o'clock in the morning and about half three in the morning, the place fills up with prostitutes. 
And they come in, they finish their shift, and they all sit around him at the tables to have their food. And he's a known preacher, although not known in this area. And he listens to one woman, uh, I think her name was uh, Esther, and uh, he listens to one woman say, do you know, girls, tomorrow is my 39th birthday. And they get very sarky with her. They say, what do you want, a party? What do you want, a cake? You know, this is our life. And uh, she says, you know, I've never had a birthday party my whole life. Never had one, never had a cake, nothing. So Tony Campolo sat there, hears this, and when the girls have left, he goes up to Harry, who's the guy running this place, and he says, tomorrow at about 2.30 in the morning, if I come in with banners and balloons and party stuff, can we put on a party for one of those ladies? And Harry's a bit surprised, but he calls his wife out, and she says, oh, yeah, she's a really lovely woman. She's always trying to reach out and be kind to people. So the following day, uh, he arrives, and Tony Campolo comes in with a banner that he got printed with her name, Esther. Happy birthday, Esther. And when the girls come off their shift, the place is alight with balloons and with a banner saying, happy birthday, Esther. And the wife, Harry's wife, has cooked her her first ever birthday cake. And if you read the account, she nearly faints with shock. And then tears start to just stream down her face. And she says, would you mind if we don't eat it? I just want to keep it. Because to her, it's a symbol that she's loved, that she's valued, that she's celebrated, that she's precious to someone, somewhere, and that she's worth something. And actually, when she leaves and takes the cake with her, Tony Campolo, true to form, prays with all of these women that are left behind. And Harry says, I didn't know that you were a preacher when you came in yesterday. And he said, whatever kind of church do you belong to? And he says, I belong to the church of Jesus Christ that does parties at three in the morning for prostitutes. And isn't that really the kind of thing we want? That we're party people, that we're known as party people, not, not kind of killjoy people. I honestly thought growing up that joy was something you'd have to give up if you became a Christian. And some of you grew up in those kind of environments and churches. The call on the church here, the call on the church in Thessalonica, in Philippians, is remain joyful. Don't put on a front, we all know where that leads, but actually find the joy deep within that is the hope of heaven that is that hope that actually, as we heard, is deferred, but is real. It's hard for us because joy doesn't come naturally and we're known as people who abstain from many things. We'll go on in a few weeks' time and look at fasting and maybe I'll get to preach on that too. Um, but actually, um, we know that we're, we're called to abstain from many things. But Jesus modelled what he added all the time. He added wine where there was water. He added a feast where there was a packed lunch. He added healing where there was illness. He was known as the one that added to and that in him was joy. Some of you will remember the film Chocolat. I think I used it here years ago because it's one of my favourites, uh, based on a novel by Joanne Harris, set in the French countryside where Reynaud, the mayor, forbids partying and celebration. And you can go into some churches and think the same thing has happened. Let that not be said of us. Um, and uh, he forbids it. He says, I don't want any of that. And then Julianne moves into the village and what does she start? A chocolate shop 
with incredible indulgence and beautiful window full of chocolate and succulent things. And he thinks this is abhorrent. And not only that, but she gives out free samples in the run-up to Easter. And he keeps trying to suppress any kind of celebration, any kind of partying. He keeps trying to put out her joy, if you like. But she resists. And uh, if you remember, finally, on the day before Christmas, on the night before um, Easter, sorry, the night before Easter, he decides to break in to the chocolate shop to sabotage her Easter. But he is so tempted that he gorges and binges on all of the chocolate and literally passes out in the window of the chocolate shop. So all the villagers, when they go by in the morning, Easter Sunday morning, see the mayor face down in chocolate. I mean, it's not a bad way to be, but face down in chocolate. In other words, the abstinence became the God. And he couldn't resist. John Ortberg says nothing conduces temptation like a joyless life. If our joy is gone, we will try and find that pleasure, that comfort somewhere else. But if we keep that discipline of enjoying our God no matter what, sometimes he'll be all we've got to enjoy, but nevertheless saying, I will seek my joy in him. I will celebrate the small things, the little things, the sunny day, the walk through the park, one of your children smiling, whatever it might be that you can give thanks for. One team that we have that are brilliant at this stuff, brilliant at celebration, is Money Advice team, who work uh, tirelessly, actually, in our community to set people free from debt. And I've asked Jules... um, actually in line with Steve's prophecy, uh, to share a testimony. Let's give Julian a welcome as he uh, comes up. Um, I just asked Julian to share one story where kind of the hope of celebration has helped somebody. Some of our clients, we can help to become debt-free in a number of weeks. For others, it can be a longer journey. So let me tell you about Ben, who I met in 2013. When we met, he had mortgage arrears of £5,000, debts of £13,000. We agreed a debt management plan with creditors while we got budgeting and good money habits in place. Ben had been married to a wife who was alcoholic. It destroyed their marriage and she left. One day she walked out and he never heard from her again. He hadn't heard from her for quite a few years until she suddenly reappeared via a solicitor demanding half the house. She started sending nasty text messages to both him and his son. We helped complete the divorce paperwork and respond to letters. We reassured him and went to court to deal with the proceedings and prayed for him in the face of the aggression and unpleasantness that he and his son were subjected to. Ben's long-term illness, panic attacks, hand tremors and depression mean that he's long-term unemployed. Each month is a fight to stay in the home. Each year for the last five years we have met, sometimes just for a review, at others several times in a row to work through paperwork and evidence. Although he's not a Christian, each time we pray. Each time he is grateful. And over this journey he has seen God do some amazing things. At court, his ex-wife power-dressed and got her solicitor to intimidate Ben just before the hearing to try and make him agree to a settlement that was unfair and unreasonable. It destroyed him. 
we grabbed him in tears. And in the middle of the waiting room, in the midst of the crowd, we stood together and prayed for justice, righteousness, and a fair outcome. When we walked into the court, we discovered the judge was blind. God won, power dressing, nil. The judge demonstrated great wisdom, realized what was going on and the wrong behavior and manipulation, and ruled fairly and clearly. That was 2017. How do you provide hope that this will all end one day? In conversation, we learned that he'd never been to London. He'd never seen a tube train, Big Ben, Parliament, or Buckingham Palace. We talked and discovered that he was wide-eyed at the thought of ever seeing those things. He's never been outside of Birmingham. So I made a promise that we would stick by his side to the very end of the journey, that there would be an end, that we would help him become debt-free, and that we would celebrate. We would celebrate by taking him and his son to London. His eyes lit up in wonder but disbelief. The next year, he came back saying that he'd like to visit the Imperial War Museum in London. A deal was struck. Hope is a wonderful thing, but words can be empty and forgotten, but we are not forgetting. I'm in London a few times each year. Often when I'm there, I take a picture of something that's very London, a red bus, a tube train, a famous landmark, and via a bit of digital technology, I turn it into a postcard and I send it to him by surprise. I write things like, Ben, you are not forgotten. Keep going, we are praying for you. You will be here. This September, this six year journey will come to an end. And we are going to celebrate. We will go to London, we will visit the museum, we'll throw in Big Ben and Buckingham Palace too. We'll enjoy a day of wonder and looking around, and we'll also look back over a six-year journey from misery to joy, to joy, and we will write it down. And boy, will we enjoy telling the story and the very special day of celebration at the end of it. Well done. I love that story and one of my reasons for really resonating with what money advice do is it's those little photographs, <clears throat> if you like, that Julian sends that we need to look out for in our own lives that say one day we will be debt free, that essentially we are because of Christ. We have those reasons to celebrate. Why? Because we're forgiven, because Jesus died for us to free us from debt, the debt of our own sins. But also, what is keeping Ben going is the thought of London. <laughs> I hope it doesn't disappoint him, I love London. Um, and I know it won't, but actually we have the hope of heaven to keep us going. When all else around us feels tough and hard, those photographs that keep coming through our scriptures, through our disciplines. Richard Foster puts the celebration of discipline, the discipline of celebration, right at the end of his book because he says this is where they all lead. That all of these disciplines, and we're not doing it last, um, kind of lead us to here. 
but Foster does give a, a real... At the end of his quote, he says, we need to be light-hearted in what we do to avoid taking ourselves too seriously. It is a cheerful revolt against self and pride. And uh, I really do like that when we think of Jesus with the Pharisees, when we think of Paul, when we think of what he asked the Thessalonian church to do. Our revolt, if you like, against the things of this world that put self on the throne, that actually say life is boring because we're sated with self. That actually, as we celebrate, as Julian shared there, as we teach someone else to celebrate, as we model the celebration of Jesus and his friends, Jesus was called a glutton and a drunk. That's how he was described. Because he hung out with people, because he partied with them, because he taught them to celebrate. And throughout scripture, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Paul, whether it's the early church in its earliest stages, there is the discipline and the joy of celebration. As we respond, I thought it would be good to just think about a couple of things that we might do even this week as a response to think about our own situations and where can joy be found? What could we celebrate this week with somebody that actually leads their heart to sing? What could we celebrate about a person in a text that we send or in a card that we write? What can we celebrate about our God as we go about our business, as we go about our day, to say, God, you are good. Even when I can't see what you are doing, I can see around me the beauty, the order, the symmetry the attention of God is all around us if we look to him. The writer of Lamentations, somebody who knew all about affliction and trial, wrote this in chapter 3. And I wondered if we could almost use this as, as we close. I had been deprived of peace and I had forgotten what prosperity was. And I said, my splendor is gone and all that I hope for from the Lord. I remember my afflictions and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I will remember them. My soul will be downcast within me. But yet, and that's the bit, but yet, this I call to my mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning.